0: I'm Thomas Small, and my friend and co-host, Eamon Dean, is here with me as well. Hello, Eamon. Hello, Thomas. How are you? Have you contracted coronavirus yet?
1: Not yet. I believe (laughs)
0: we're all going to die of it soon. (laughs) No. Well, inshallah, as you say. So far in season two, we have been dissecting America's ambition following the end of the Cold War to establish a new world order of global capitalism, Liberal democracy, all protected by America's military might. Last time we talked about Russia and about America's ambition to establish a new profitable partnership with their old enemy, and about how, thanks to Vladimir Putin, that didn't quite work out. So, we've done the Middle East and we've done Russia, and today we're focusing on the third object of America's attention as it strove to build a new world order. And of course, I'm talking about. China. For the new world order to succeed, China would have to be fully integrated into the global economy, which would result, or so America believed, in China's leadership enthusiastically embracing liberal democracy. Let's discuss how successful that plan was. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says there are only a dozen years left for global warming
1: to be kept to a maximum
0: of one and a half degrees Celsius. We're
1: seeing the end of capitalism, the end of capitalism as we know it, and I say good riddance. It what
0: is at stake is more in one small country than you will. So, Eamon, in your life now as a contractor, let's say, <laughs> around the world, working with all sorts of governments, you have grown into something of an authority on really the entire what used to be called developing world. But let's face it, they're pretty developed now. So you have authority to speak on China, would you say?
1: From a political and security point of view, yes, to an extent, because in my first trip into China... And it was the first of hundreds of other trips like it uh, afterwards was in 2010 uh, when I was invited by uh, one of their largest uh, oil and natural gas companies state-owned, to lecture on issues regarding security. Um, after the lecture, I ended up basically being signed on as their security advisor in the Middle East, and I started basically frequenting China, sometimes six, seven times a year, more than that. What was your first impression of China when you arrived? We're um, we talking Beijing here? Yeah. But, but, you know, Beijing, I went to Hong Kong, of course, basically, and other places across China, from the Northeast, you know, all the way to the Northwest and beyond. So, I really was fascinated by this, you know, society, by this place, which, you know, I remember my first trip was in the middle of winter, so it was so cold. (laughs) But in time, my relationship started to extend beyond just, you know, oil and telecommunication companies started even to grow even with the government departments there, you know, in order basically to talk with them, think tanks that actually know, uh, advise the uh, leadership of the Communist Party. So I started basically to have, you know, greater integration with them in terms of understanding, first of all, their fears and also their aspirations, their fears uh, of uh, dealing with the Muslim world. But at the same time, their aspirations into really economically uh, conquering the Muslim world as they have done uh, in the 1420s 1430s and 1440s during the uh, voyage of uh, the muslim admiral from china He, so they wanted to have this extended trade network with the muslim world because that's where the energy is and that's where the potential for china's you know uh, economic you know expansionism is
0: we're going to get there in the end mm-hmm. so let's focus our attention on hong kong and see what the what the tensions between it and china can tell us about the wider question of an american led new world order Eamon, as you know napoleon famously said china is a sleeping lion let her sleep For when she wakes, she will shake the world.
1: I would have corrected him by saying, China is a sleeping dragon. Ooh,
0: when she wakes, she will burn
1: the world. Well, in this case, I'm not saying burning the world, but I would say basically more or less embracing the world. (laughs) (laughs) But how tightly this embrace and how suffocating, well, that's what we are going to discuss today.
0: So... The theory has been for the last 40 years or so that if China is integrated into the global order of world trade and the American-led Atlanticist uh, order that, you know, that they built up following the Second World War and ramped up following the end of the Cold War, if, if China could be integrated into that, then not only would economic growth occur there, but liberal democracy would flourish there. Why do you suppose Western leaders assumed this to be the case, that that with economic growth comes liberal democracy?
1: I think because they always equated capitalism or free market uh, system with uh, liberal values and democracy, which is not the case. If you look at many prosperous nations around the world, not all of them basically follow the same, you know, uh, liberal democracy and, uh, you know, human rights as others. I mean, you know, there are many prosperous nations that are really autocracies. So
0: from the, from the Western, I mean, when we're talking about the West, it, this is just an ideological fixation. Liberal democracy and capitalism go together. They just think that, but there's no reason to think that.
1: There is no reason. I mean, just look at, for example, a country like the United States Arab Emirates or Kuwait or Saudi Arabia. Um, and if you look at country like even Singapore, because it is very strict, it is, it, it, you know, you can't chew gum there, you can't throw anything in the, in the street. You know, it's very, very regimented.
0: Not known for its liberal regime.
1: Exactly. So if you look at a country like in the United Arab Emirates, I mean, people there do not have you know, the aspirations to become a liberal democracy, because for them, they believe that, well, look, we're already a, you know, a free market, you know, in a free enterprise society, we are doing really well. Why do we have to rock the boat?
0: I want to stop you so that we don't get off track because we're talking about China. And so we've said now that the West was looking at China and thought we've got to make them liberal Democrats. We'll make them liberal Democrats by incorporating them into our global economic system. And with prosperity will come liberal democracy. Fine. Let's move away from America's point of view and try to imagine ourselves into China's point of view, particularly the point of view of the Chinese leadership. And as this series is talking about the New World Order, the post-Cold War world, it's good that if we start back... In 1989, Um, the Berlin Wall is falling and precisely around that time in China, the communists are crushing protesters in Tiananmen Square. This is a very famous event, the the protests uh, by students in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. I remember 10 years old, I guess, maybe 11. I remember, you know, watching it on TV and that famous image of the lone student standing in front of the Chinese tank, daring the tank to crush him, daring the Chinese regime to crush his aspirations for a more liberal, more democratic China. Do you remember that episode from where you were at the time in Eastern Saudi Arabia?
1: Vividly. I was a child in Saudi Arabia, but it was a picture that was, you know, posted in most of the Arab newspapers at the time.
0: So the Chinese are the Chinese leadership, I should say, in Beijing, are watching the Soviet Union slowly collapse while struggling but succeeding in crushing any liberal dissent internally. But as they're watching the Soviet Union collapse, they're pretty concerned that the same thing not happened to them. They were born out of the same sort of ideology as the Soviet Union, you know, Maoism, communist China. They had been allies of the Soviet Union before famously they broke away for geopolitical reasons that we don't want to go into. But they shared so much in common with the Soviet Union ideologically that they're obviously the the collapse of that empire uh, would have threatened them, would have frightened them. So they're determined not to have the same thing happen to them. Do you think it was ever likely around that time, that the same thing could happen to them?
1: Well, what was going on through their mind, and uh, remember basically that the Chinese leadership um, have greater collective wisdom, at least, than the collective wisdom of the Soviet Union (laughs) leadership at that time. So for them, they realized that Tiananmen was a wake-up call. And some within the party, you know, within the Communist Party, decided that the direction is to go into more repression and more state control. dong Xiaoping, he basically envisioned that no, we can survive. We can basically survive as a, you know, quasi communist uh, government if we liberalize the markets. He basically I, saw that there is a way forward for China. I think the
0: the important point here is about is to really ignore ideas about communism. It, mm-hmm. it gets in the way. The Chinese leadership were primarily interested less in maintaining communism as an ideology to maintain and maintaining power. their one party totalitarian yep. rule. They want one party rule in China focused entirely on Beijing. And their totalitarian system had already over the preceding 40 years been through a lot. I mean, during the period of Chairman Mao, there were two great waves of extraordinary, really extraordinary violence and uh, social disruption, let us call it. First, the so-called Great Leap Forward, which caused a famine that killed about 30 million people. And then only 10 years or so later, the so-called Cultural Cultural. Revolution, the Cultural Revolution, which killed at least 20 million. So China has been through the ringer. Now, in the 70s, Things began to change. Nixon famously went to China in 1972 and brought China in from the cold. And from that point onward, the American leadership worked closely with China. At the time, of course, thinking, well, since China and the Soviet Union have fallen out, we can maybe take advantage of that by making the enemy of our enemy our friends. And then following Mao's death, when this Deng Xiaoping becomes the premier, he starts this shift away from Maoism and towards allowing aspects of a free market or at least a private property-dominated economy in the country. So China has already, by the time of Tiananmen Square, started to make these moves. But you're saying that Tiananmen Square was a wake-up call, but it wasn't a wake-up call like maybe the West wished it to be. They didn't think we need to have liberalism. They just said what?
1: What they said is we should embrace pragmatism. In other words, that if the people have enough, if the people have financial aspirations then their political aspirations can be kept in check
0: so this is in fact the opposite of the western point of view so the chinese are saying with prosperity will come political quiescence now that's that's interesting because in the last months we have seen in hong kong the opposite of political quiescence the hong kong people are rising up hong kong which is a very important bastion of the western economic system right there beside China, sort of quasi a part of China since 1997, which beginning in April 2019 has seen lots of protests, which became increasingly violent, increasingly inflammatory over all sorts of questions, questions that really get to the heart of the Western economic system, what's called neoliberalism, because in Hong Kong, they're facing growing property, prices, the young generation feel disenfranchised, economic growth is stagnating. The system actually, though it seems to have a veneer of democracy, is being revealed more and more to just be a kind of economic capitalist, crony capitalist oligarchy. So first of all, before we start analyzing it, what can you tell me about these Hong Kong protests? Why did they start? When did they start? What do the people who are protesting in Hong Kong want?
1: Okay. In Hong Kong, the protesters are protesting mostly because of the extradition treaty uh, between uh, China, uh, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, which talks about basically the ex, you know the extradition of criminals or people basically who have been deemed uh, in a criminal in the Chinese justice system and Hong Kong justice system and in Taiwan justice system. So basically the idea is that it's an extradition treaty. So someone will say basically, well, is that really? And I will answer no. Basically, well, it's, true, it's, but, but... it's a culmination of so many things and the feeling that this is just an excuse by China to extend this hegemony into Hong Kong.
0: Now, Eamon, it must be said that the Chinese crackdown against these protesters has been, at least from our lights, severe. President Xi Jinping, he is China's strongman at the moment, uh, he threatened the protesters openly. He said that any attempt to endanger China's national sovereignty and security or to challenge the power of the central government crossed a red line and would be dealt with harshly. He did say that, which is, in general, a very clear articulation of the Chinese political perspective, which is, you will not stop us. China is going to win.
1: But you know, basically, there has been there hasn't been any direct uh, Chinese uh, crackdown in uh, Hong Kong.
0: But he said they would.
1: They would, but they didn't.
0: No, I know, but they would. Yeah. <laughs> no, but well, they, I mean, the Hong Kong police have cracked down very yeah, yeah. harshly, and everyone knows, you know, to whom the Hong Kong police actually answer.
1: Yeah, but you know, whose fault is that? You know, Britain did not defend, uh, you know, basically its, uh, you know, position in Hong Kong. and It is it,
0: not Britain's fault that Hong Kong police are cracking down on no, protesters. What, Britain doesn't have the no, power no, to... What to I input. mean,
1: what I mean basically is that they left, you know, in 1997. So 22 years later, who do you think basically the Hong Kong police will answer to? If it's not to China, then to who? Because Maybe to
0: the people of Hong Kong. That uh, would be nice.
1: Yeah, but in 20 years, it will go back to China. (laughs)
0: That's true. Well, in 20 years, they can deal with that. It, It must be pointed out that for almost 200 years, Hong Kong was part of the British Empire. It was sort of leased to the British in the early 19th century on a long lease. And that lease came up. Uh, In 1997, at which point Hong Kong was handed back to the Chinese. Now, a very complicated set of negotiations led up to that handover, and one of the many things that one of the many concessions that the Chinese agreed to was, for example, not to extradite criminals from one justice system to the other because the Hong Kong uh, residents were, for justifiable reasons, afraid that the legal system of Hong Kong based on British common law and respect for human human rights and things might clash with the system in China. So the extradition treaty may seem like a small thing but it symbolizes something which is that the agreement that had that the Chinese had made might be coming apart and that the Hong Kong will be integrated more completely into the Chinese system which Hong Kong people fear. Is that is that fair?
1: Well, one of my uh bosses when I was working in the in that particular global bank I used to work for uh, after I left the UK intelligence services he said to me that up to 1997 the people of Hong Kong were feeling so nervous that between 1992 and 1997 many many people basically migrated to Canada the US UK and other places you know because they were afraid that the handover will basically you know make them Proper Chinese. And remember, nineteen ninety-seven China wasn't as advanced as now. No, and wasn't also as as and, and,
0: and, now. The, and the the shadow of Tiananmen Square hangs over this whole exactly. conversation. Throughout the nineties, China was still kind of a baddie. It hadn't been you know, it hadn't been brought in entirely from exactly. the cold.
1: But you know, when I started going to Hong Kong, I started to see basically that people there were relaxed about it because why because up until then up until even up until the celebrations of the 20th anniversary of uh, the handover in In 2017 2017, because i was there in hong kong also and i was you know seeing all these you know billboards and advertisement and celebration of better together and all of that so you know you ask people there and they say well so far china did not interfere too much but also people are saying we are now you know almost almost halfway to become fully integrated into china it is 2047 That's a date when the special status, most likely the special status of Hong Kong as an SAR, uh, a special administrative region of China, will come to an end.
0: This was also part of the negotiations with the British at the handover. Exactly. The the settlement that they agreed on would last only 50 years, at which point China would do with Hong Kong what it wished, and everyone assumes that will be to incorporate it as a proper proper part of, of the country.
1: Exactly. But since then... If you see basically the Pearl River, you know, uh, delta, you know, the Pearl River Delta. Yeah. You know, we're talking here about, you know, Macau, Hong Kong, but also Xinjiang and Huangzhou. So basically all of these cities, you know, there are over 95 million people basically live in that delta. And China now has, you know, basically built a sea bridge over Uh, You know that Delta in order to connect all the four cities together.
0: So they're coming the infrastructure is being laid down already
1: Exactly. So for them for the people of Hong Kong, they started to feel that oh my god, basically we're being incorporated But at the same time the living standards, you know in the cities around Hong Kong Especially Shenzhen just to the north of it started to improve considerably and this is the mainland China And, you know, this is something that started to affect the people of Hong Kong, where they started to have this kind of double loyalty. They fear China, but at the same time, they admire the fact that China builds while Hong Kong doesn't. You know, there is a monopoly of land in Hong Kong, and that basically has caused many young people to feel despair over the fact that they will never be able to own a property because it is the most expensive real estate in the whole world. This almost. is
0: extremely this is extremely interesting to hear because in a way Hong Kong is like a little western satellite just beyond China and the west as well is kind of going through waves of similar realizations that its relative prosperity is less than it used to be vis-a-vis the rest of the world, especially China, as a result of which it doesn't command the same sort of power. It looks across at China and is a little bit concerned or half concerned, half admiring. Property values throughout the Western world are skyrocketing, especially in the cities. The young generation can't, can't afford to buy houses, including you know, even the generation like myself. And so the Hong Kong people are kind of going through the same thing.
1: But 10 times worse. Ask any person from Hong Kong, can you afford to buy a house? Which is in reality a shoebox in a high-rise. That's what it is, uh, and they will tell you basically it's you know not until they are in their forties they can you know uh, they will be able to afford, um, and that is the problem here. It's yes, it's true.
0: Hong Kong is the world's most expensive real estate market by exactly. far. It's it's you know the average house cost uh, costs one point two million dollars in in Hong Kong. This is. Well above Singapore, which is the second most expensive <laughs> in the, in the world, so that's a big problem. Hong Kong's real estate prices are extremely high.
1: Not now, for shortage of land, but not for a shortage
0: of, of land. It's, it's an island.
1: Yeah, no, but still, they have you know a good decent part of the mainland basically that belongs to them. So basically, it's not a shortage of land. It is the monopolization of land by the Land Department of the Government of Hong Kong. They. You know, rarely basically put out uh, small parcels of land for development, uh, for auction. And of course, it will be the highest bidder. And as a result, you know, the prices just keep going higher and higher and higher. They control it because basically of the fact that there is when, when people say Hong Kong is, you know, a democracy, I really start to laugh. It's an oligarchy of real estate barons.
0: It's true. Hong Kong is uh, headed up by someone called a chief executive, which (laughs) is quite funny because that's an (laughs) expression we usually associate with the world of of, of corporations. So the Hong Kong chief executive oversees a a committee which is dominated by by property oligarchs, really, but then who also have their fingers in all the pies of of Hong Kong.
1: Exactly. So what happened here is that now the protests are about anti-China. That's what, you know, what's happening. But the question is, what triggers it? What triggered all of this? Yes, the fear that China is going to rob them of their, you know, uh, human rights, of their freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. And that's right. The, you know, but if I tell you what the Chinese official told me over dinner, and he is someone I also met in Hong Kong, you know, several times, as well as in mainland China and he said that the problem is i feel that the you know hong kong young are protesting against china but they are protesting at the wrong you know uh, enemy here the real enemy are the ones who are robbing them of their aspirations because if he he compared a young you know entrepreneur from china from shenzhen just north of the border and a young entrepreneur you know, from Hong Kong. And he will say basically that the young entrepreneur in Hong Kong won't have enough savings or money to invest in his business or uh, invention because he's already, you know, spending so much of his uh, income on rent because he can't buy. And if he tried to get an office or incorporate, basically, it's even more expensive. But a young man from Shenzhen can save more even though the income is less, can save more of his income because the rents are less. And, you know, if he wants to incorporate and start a business and all that, the cost of business is less. So, you know, the reality is that Shenzhen is now becoming more successful than Hong Kong, you know, as a tech capital of China, while Hong Kong remaining reliant on the financial sector as well as the trade sector. But if only the real estate prices start to go down, Only then we start to see basically that the people of Hong Kong will start to feel more secure about their future. It's difficult, though, because the
0: entire Hong Kong political economy is propped up by high house prices. Unsustainable. It it may be unsustainable, but it's true. I mean, because Hong Kong has famously low taxes, uh, which is it is claimed which lies behind its rise to economic domination over the 20th century. Fine. But the state, which still needs to provide public services, is funded largely by its ownership and its its selling and, and renting of these of, of property, which is so which so they have to keep the price very high in order to sustain the system as it is.
1: But then the system will lock uh the next generation. The, the next generation is, will, will remain locked out of the property market because it's just too high. It's just unrealistically high.
0: So what does the China, what is this Chinese official say is the solution? I mean, what would, China, what would the Chinese Communist Party do to solve this problem?
1: Well, for them, they are saying, well, we are going to wait until 2047. We are biding our time. 2047 is around the corner from a historical point of view. And only then, basically, when the whole... The two regions basically, like I mean, the uh, uh, both Macau and uh, Hong Kong become fully integrated into China, then and you know, be the real estate market basically, you know, in Hong Kong will collapse automatically because then there will be no border between Shenzhen, you know, and Huangzhou, another place, and the mainland China and Hong Kong. People can commute. It will be linked up by train. There will be no visas or passports or border anymore. There will be commuter belt created for Hong Kong by then. People can just live in Shenzhen or its suburbs and can basically commute to Hong Kong on a daily basis. So the Chinese are
0: the, Ch- the Chinese are not threatened by these protests. I mean, we're, we're, we hear all the time in the news here that the protests in Hong Kong are a harbinger of big problems for China, that it might be the first domino in a set of dominoes that, come, that brings the whole system toppling down. The Chinese, they're pretty sanguine. They, they're not afraid.
1: This is a problem. I mean, it's, the, the West always gets excited about protests and freedom and all of that. Like, I mean, But, you know, you need to understand that it's far more complex than that. The Chinese media machine is very formidable they really know how to steer the public opinion of their people without the people knowing that they are being steered into that direction. The argument I made now that the protesters in Hong Kong you know, have been, you know, yes, they have been triggered by the uh, treaty, but in reality, basically, they are also protesting about- The extradition treaty, the extradition treaty. The extradition treaty, they've been riled up about it, but also they are riled up because they feel that they don't have a future in Hong Kong because of the fact that they will always remain renters, you know, rather than, you know, property uh, owning individuals and professionals. And so that is, so the Chinese media, really made it into, oh, these poor people, they are misled because while well, they are, you know, uh, uh, you know, they are protesting against the wrong enemy here. Their enemy is the oligarchs, those capitalist oligarchs who have monopolized the land. Look at them. You know, unlike us, we are building entire cities, you know, in months in order to accommodate you, our people, so you have cheap, you know, affordable. High-quality homes. So this is the
0: Chinese counter-narrative. Exactly. Is it, is it landing? Is there any indication that you that you know of that the Hong Kong people are listening and thinking, oh, that's interesting?
1: Well, there are, it's not directed at the Hong Kong people. It is directed at the Chinese people. Because when the Chinese people see the protest, the Chinese government want to make sure that it's not that The, the protests
0: don't spread.
1: Exactly. So what they are saying, look, look at Hong Kong model. People can't afford the shoebox. You guys, however, basically, we are building like there is no tomorrow, <laughs> so, you know, so in a sense, they have actually cleverly, you know, turned the narrative upside down and that the protesters are just misled people who, you know, thinks their enemy is China, while in fact, basically, they are angry about their living conditions.
0: So the Hong Kong protests aren't going to derail the Chinese juggernaut anytime soon. Let's switch now. Let's move to the other side of China uh, and return, in fact, to a topic that we discussed in season one of, uh, of Conflicted. And this is the other thing that you often hear about these days that's going on in China uh, in the, on the west uh, side of the country amongst the, a population of Uyghurs, the Uyghurs of Xinjiang province in the west. Um, briefly now, because we did cover this in, in season one, who are the Uyghurs? They're not actually Chinese.
1: Well, remember that China have 56 uh, ethnic minorities. <laughs> so um, they are one of the ethnic minorities of China. They're not uh,
0: Han Chinese. Oh,
1: no. Han, the Han actually make up the vast majority of uh, Chinese people, but then, remember, there are, you know, Mongolians, Kazakhs, uh, there are Tibetans. Tibetans, you know, there are the Cantonese, you know, basically, there are the Huey Muslims, who are actually Han Chinese, but by ethnicity, but Muslims. Um, and don't forget the religious minorities who are always, you know, prosecuted. Like, many people basically talk about Muslims being prosecuted. Not necessarily. Huey Muslims don't have the same, you know, trouble that the Uyghur Muslims have, and that's because of the separatism that the Uyghurs have, which...
0: Now, Eamon, I want to push you on this. You say that we Muslims haven't faced persecution by the Chinese state. I think that's not, strictly speaking, accurate. Now, it's true, they're certainly not experiencing what uh, some of the Uyghurs are experiencing. But... In April 2018, the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department took control of the State Bureau of Religious Affairs. And so they are now directly overseeing religious affairs, um, no longer the government itself. And this United Front has emerged as a very aggressive uh, proponent of making sure that religious groups throughout China are not expressing any, anything that they consider to be anti-Chinese. It's part of a larger process of Sinification of, of religion in China. So, for example, amongst the Hui Muslims, they've been knocking down domes and minarets, anything that smacks actually of Arab aesthetic, Arab Islamic aesthetic. Now, I think it's important to, to point out that this actually... I mean, in fact, this actually backs up your larger argument, I would say, which is that the Chinese state is involved in state building, in creating a viable nation state, which can then project its power outwards. And Muslims within China are considered to be potentially antagonistic to that effort. Ironically, as they are often considered to be elsewhere in the world, even in the West. You know, it is Muslims that often create this sense that they're not really one of us. They're not really signed up to our national identity.
1: Well, historically speaking, the Hui Muslims, you know, filled up many, many uh, posts in the government that are related to commerce, diplomacy, and even the Navy. Um, so, in a sense, yes, the emergence of that committee from the Communist Party to take over the religious uh, affairs of uh, China was worrying, and worrying for so many people, including the Huey. But for the Huey, when they were saying, yes, only very few mosques of ours basically have minarets and domes, because the vast majority of Huey mosques, and I've been to some of them, look exactly like Chinese temples.
0: It must be beautiful.
1: And they've been like this for centuries. You know, the Huey Muslims from the beginning, from a thousand years ago, they built their mosques, you know, not distinguished at all from the rest of the Chinese architecture. So when you see you can't tell a mosque from outside and this is not because of the Communist Party or anything has been happening from a thousand years ago. It's true. But more recently,
0: in yeah. fact, the Hui Muslims have received some money from the Gulf, especially Saudi Arabia and and, you know, and. Salafi missionary movements have been appealing to some Huys, and the Chinese state is trying to stop this. Exactly.
1: I mean, and, you know, and ironically, some members of the diplomatic mission uh, of China in Saudi Arabia are Hui Muslims themselves. And they were talking to religious scholars in Saudi Arabia, telling them, please, you know, just leave us alone when it comes to our religious identity. We are Muslims. Muslims enough. Thank you so much. Just stay out of it. Okay, they, now here we you're, don't you're have. racing ahead now. Yeah, yeah. Who are the Uyghurs? <laughs> so, the Uyghurs are a Turkic uh, ethnic group. So, they are more similar to people in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, so they are Turkic in their uh, in fact it's the birthplace of the Turkic based languages, especially in places like Kashi uh, which called in uh, you know in Arabic Kashgar and in the local language Kashkar so you know which is basically sitting in the southern part of the Xinjiang province in Northwest China
0: So let me just tell you what I know about the Uyghur situation Mm -hmm. in China. Uh, The Chinese are evil and they're erecting enormous concentration camps, shoving millions of Uyghurs in them and brainwashing them into not being Muslims because they hate God.
1: No, it's not like that.
0: (laughs) Really? I mean, that's what I've been told. Okay. Okay. First, before you just destroy (laughs) the received wisdom of it, to what extent is that narrative true?
1: Okay. So, you know, a disclaimer to, you know, the listener here. You know, as I have you know uh, a lot of commercial interest in China myself, so basically I'm not you know basically defending China because of that, and I'm not actually you know defending in you know, a say I'm explaining the situation as it is. Great, but also I have to you know basically state that I relied a lot on the uh, of official Chinese uh, narrative here. In fact. When I was, you know, invited to come to uh, Xinjiang myself, I've been there and I visited uh, even one of the camps, you know, basically been talked about. Um, so I was still being minded. I was still basically like in a way, you know, Chinese. A Chinese
0: government minder. Exactly. But you have visited one of these camps that are holding Uyghurs.
1: Indeed. So for them, they believe that the separatism, you know, that the Uyghurs basically, you know, harbor. Like
0: Tibetans say. So the Uyghurs think we're a people, we shouldn't be dominated by Beijing, we want to be separate. Yeah.
1: So the separatism, you know, which is cloaked in Islamic you know, uh, ideology also with with it.
0: Because Uyghurs are Muslim, exactly Sunni Muslim, like like Saudis, like Egyptians, like yeah, Algerians. Yeah, Sunni, Sunni
1: Muslims, but you know there is a division there. You know between those who are Sufis and those who are more you know influenced by other schools of thought. Not just only Diobandi uh, in which is uh, the, a kind uh,
0: of hardline Salafi kind of movement no, no, from Diyarb- the south from from South India, South yeah, Asia. Yeah, it's not
1: Salafi. It's, a, it's it's a hardline Hanafi. Oh sorry. Uh, yeah, it's a hardline Hanafi. These, these <laughs> different labels get all confused. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, so trust me, I struggle always basically to explain this to others. But, you know, there are so many schools of thought that have influenced, you know, the uh, Uyghurs basically in terms of religious affiliation. Remember, uh, Xinjiang province as a whole have about 26 million people. Um, and despite being so big as a province um, and roughly about 12 million to 13 million are Uyghurs. So, so basically, roughly half, roughly half, below half. So... You know, but they are concentrated mostly in the southern half of the province, and the northern half have less Uyghurs and more Han, and Hui, and Kazakhs, and other ethnicities.
0: So the, the 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 Uyghur population, which lives more in the south part of the of the province, they're broadly speaking Sunni Muslims. So what are the
1: Chinese government trying to do to them? Okay. The Chinese didn't have that much problems with them, basically, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, because mostly it was Sufi Islam that was dominant. I remember I was talking to an imam uh, there in uh, Kashi, and he said to me something interesting. He said, look, you know, you've noticed that, you know, on the way here, you know, there were villages that are looking like a post-apocalypse, like, you know, basically no one is there. You know, a mosque is destroyed, bulldozed completely, and the streets are empty. No one is there. And then you pass into another village or another town where the mosques are open, you know, with lights and celebrations, and, you know, the streets are bustling. He said, this is when you see a Sufi in a village that is, or a town that is cooperating with the authorities, and you will see another place where there is more spirit of separatism. That's a place that is deserted, and this is a place that is rewarded.
0: So, so the Chinese aren't really. It's not really about Islam. It's about a form of Islam that some Uyghurs have embraced over the last few decades. That is more political. In its orientation, let's call it Islamism, more mm-hmm. Islamist in its orientation, and which feels that uh, being within or being under the Chinese uh, state is against Islam or something. They're 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 political separatists.
1: Yeah. So so what's happened here is that the problem is there were a group of people from Xinjiang who, when they were studying in Pakistan in the Islamic University of Islamabad in the nineteen eighties. Their teachers included people like Kamal Helbawi, halbawi who was, the, you know, the, one of the most senior leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in the world, and Abdullah Azzam, oh, wow. who, yes, who was, you know, the, the great
0: uh, ideologue who basically started the jihad in Afghanistan against the Soviets.
1: Oh, yes. He, he, so, so they influenced a new generation of, of
0: Uyghur students in Pakistan.
1: Indeed. And they started to return and preach the gospel of jihadism. I know, ah. it's a contradiction of terms, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so they started to preach jihadism, Muslim Brotherhood ideals, and even some of them returned, you know, basically from places like Uzbekistan and other places with the new ideas that coming from the Middle East, which is the ideals of Hizb tahrir
0: Which is a, an, a, a radical Sunni um, Islamist group.
1: Exactly, which calls for the return of the caliphate. Like
0: Uh, like all the other uh, bozos who we've been talking about,
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly, to the point where you know, it's estimated that the number of Hizb ut Tahrir members, underground members basically in Xinjiang, according to Hizb ut Tahrir sources themselves, exceeds six to seven thousand members.
0: That doesn't sound like so many people. And I mean, God, the country has one point three billion.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm talking about the Uyghur population is twelve million. So basically, having six or seven thousand members of Hizb ut-Tahrir, and that's only Hizb ut-Tahrir. We're not talking about the Muslim Brotherhood. And not to mention the jihadists.
0: Because <laughs> there have been Uyghurs in, in Syria, as we discussed in season one. And
1: Afghanistan and, you know, you know, fighting alongside the Taliban.
0: So the Chinese are afraid of the separatism that is being incubated amongst this kind of Islamist ideology amongst the Uyghurs. But what are they doing to the okay. Uyghurs?
1: So if you are looking at them, they are, you know, they basically believe that, look, as we have pacified Tibet, They believe they have pacified Tibet. So the person, you know, the individual who actually was responsible for the pacification of Tibet is now in Xinjiang, and he's been there for a few years. He is now basically leading the effort to pacify uh,
0: I'm, Eamon, I'm afraid you're not selling this to me because I have my whole life. I've only heard that the Tibetans have been utterly crushed by the Chinese behemoth. And, and, you know, Richard Gere has told me many times at the Oscars that the Tibetans are suffering.
1: Well, OK. Suffering politically, maybe. But economically speaking, things are started to change a lot. You We're know. back
0: again to that. This is the Chinese way. We will make you rich. Yes. And you just give us your freedom in exchange.
1: Well, yeah. You know, this is the money. Obey. That is the Chinese methodology. And this is why when I talk to people about it, they keep saying, but they are not supposed to do that. I, I remind them that this is China. This is not Europe. This is not North America. This is not Australia. This is China. The Chinese have their own way of dealing with things. And therefore, we have to understand their mentality, their mindset. I must stress, Thomas, that I made my position very clear, you know, basically in my lectures on counterterrorism to Chinese officials, that repression doesn't work. Repression will breed only further acts of terrorism and further acts of violence. And what's happening is beyond what could be endured by the population who are very proud people.
0: The Uyghurs. Yeah.
1: And, you know, and I made my position very clear. On I'm this. glad
0: you're saying this because, I, you know, I want the listener to understand that Eamon is not justifying the Chinese state repression. He's simply explaining it.
1: I'm explaining it. I tell you, there is a possibility of a negotiated settlement for this entire, sorry, crisis. There are many people in China who are good-hearted people, decent people, whether in academia or in the think tanks that advise, you know, the Chinese government. You know, if if the demands for separatism is dropped, then the negotiation over religious freedoms, you know, can kickstart, really. And this is why I'm saying, as long as there is a possibility of talks, of secretive talks basically taking place, take this chance. It's about the survival of the Uyghur Muslim religious and ethnic identity.
0: Aymen, this is all very interesting. I mean, I I must say, it freaks me out what you're describing about the Chinese uh, rep- and and, the, and their apparatus of repression in 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 uh, Xinjiang against the Uyghurs.
1: Well, you know, we have to understand, you know, basically, we don't excuse, by the way, we just say understand why they want to maintain the integrity of their borders and the integrity of China as a unified country.
0: And their way of doing things includes setting up camps, putting a recalcitrant Uyghurs into them and brainwashing them into being obedient to the Chinese state. Is that basically what's going on? Yes. And are they being murdered in droves if they refuse?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, basically, the question here is that when I ask the question all the time, are there any people basically who has been executed? And the answer is there are people who's been executed since 2009 until now on charges of terrorism. And the fact many of them were returnees from Afghanistan uh, or, you know, in later years, basically returnees from Syria who were trying to carry out acts of terrorism. There has been dozens of acts of terrorism by the Uyghurs, you know, you know, uh, who are jihadists basically in China. You know, the Kunmin massacre, you know, is one of them. Basically, I've never heard
0: of the Kunmin massacre. Uh,
1: well, it is, uh, you know, in the province of Yunnan, I think. Basically, it was in 2014 where in a, at a train station. Uh, it was a knife attack that it's someone a knife went attack.
0: berserk and killed all sorts of people.
1: Exactly. Like, you know, dozens of people were killed. Hundreds were wounded. I mean, and so, you know, and there were many other acts of terrorism, you know, basically, uh, uh you know, car bombs against police stations in Xinjiang. I mean, basically, the, the Chinese, um uh, you know, released a video basically containing five minutes containing, you know, all of these acts of terrorism happening on caught on CCTV and all of that. So. Now, so for, so jihadists
0: for, have been executed in China, yeah, yeah. but what about just garden variety Uyghurs who would, frankly, rather be Muslims and not Chinese?
1: Okay, so this is basically when you ask, and they say, no, we don't basically execute people because they think differently, and we put them in prison until basically they recant, but we do not execute people you know, in this way. That's what they say, and I ca- haven't seen any evidence of people basically being executed. You know, for thought crimes. Frankly, even if that's the case, it, it
0: doesn't make me really want to move to Xinjiang. But the, my, let's just yeah. let, the real question is, why does China care that much? I mean, it's Xinjiang. Who cares about Xinjiang? Why can't these people just... Why why don't we just allow a new Central Asian Republic, call it Xinjiang, to be established and it breaks away from Beijing? Uh, okay. I mean, Fa- Western China, it's nothing. It's just desert and crap. Okay. and.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I've been there. But actually, you know, if you... Tour the place. It's really beautiful. I mean, really. I'm not kidding. It's really beautiful.
0: Sure, there are lots of beautiful places. The Chinese don't need to own them.
1: Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> but historically speaking, first of all, the Chinese border always fluctuated against the Russian Empire, against the Turkic empires. You know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That, you know, that's always the case. And since the Qing Dynasty and beyond, and before even that, the Uyghurs lived. You know, for periods of time, under you know, uh, Chinese influence, under Russian influence, under Turkic uh, influence. So there were always these, you know, movements. There wasn't a single country, you know, basically called Turkestan or East Turkestan, as they call it, you know, uh, in Xinjiang, except for brief periods of time in now, the this, last this part millennium. of the world
0: is a frontier zone between empires and always exactly has been. it's
1: always has been. So now for when I you know i will I will not say this as my opinion. I will just, tell you what that Imam from Kashi, who was telling me about why the Chinese are putting hundreds of thousands of people in the camps and talking about them and saying, while it is regrettable, he believed it was necessary because, you know, the ideologies that are coming out of other Muslim countries has infected them with the rebellious uh, nature, which doesn't you know bode well for the future of the Uyghurs in the region. He said that, look, we are 12 million people in this province. This province was always the back door of China. You know, uh, you know there, is, there was no reason for the Chinese to hold on to it because basically it is not exactly rich in natural resources. It is not basically very strategic, but something changed You know, in recent years. Now, instead of being the back door of China, now Xinjiang is the front door of China, the new front door of China. And it's, it's important for a strategic survival. And why is that? What's changed? Okay. What changed is the Belt and Road Initiative. The
0: Belt and Road Initiative. And I think just because it's easier to say and to remember, let's call this the New Silk Road. Exactly. Because it has a very Orientalist flavor (laughs) about it. Exactly. So the Belt and Road Initiative, the New Silk Road, is essentially a continental high-speed rail network which connects China to Europe via... Central Asia and the Middle East and Russia, meaning that goods can get to Europe faster than by ship. And this is amazing because it undercuts American naval shipping routes. It it basically is shifting back to the continental system from the Atlanticist naval-dominated system. And it includes all sorts of things, ports, new maritime routes. The Chinese are basically throwing down the gauntlet to the way the world has been run for the last 500 years and saying, we're back. We are going to dominate global trade.
1: Look, the Belt and Road Initiative is a gigantic, gigantic project. It will cost a trillion dollars, and that's only phase one. What will happen is that there will be, you know, you know, basically, Xinjiang, whether it is Urumqi, the capital, or Kashi, the you know, second uh, city, basically, in the south of Xinjiang, uh, uh, they will become the junctions of this new Silk Road. Freight trains will leave Beijing with the containers and they will arrive in Berlin in 16 days. Now, these days, it will take by ship between 40 to 48 days to do it.
0: That's Uh, astonishing. That's really undercutting the the time.
1: Yes, and not just only that. So it will will, will cut the time by 30, but also... It Will reduce insurance premiums because it's a rail, it's safe. You know, while the shipping routes basically are, of course, you know, threatened by hurricanes and weather, and pirates, pirates in the Malacca Strait, and uh, you know, uh, you know, which is a chokehold, and also the uh Somali pirates, basically. You know, there are many chokeholds the Ma- the Strait of Malacca, you know, the Babel Mandab, you know, the Suez Canal, and you have to pay money there and all of that. So, so what happened is. If the railroad will go from Beijing to Urumqi, from Urumqi then it goes to Almaty in uh, Kazakhstan, from there into Moscow and St. Petersburg, and from there into Poland and uh, you know, Germany and France and UK and Spain. And also there will be another one from Kashi going all the way to Gawadar, which is a port you know, in On Pakistan. The you no, know, on the Arabian Sea, just oh, on the mouth just, of the Gulf. The Arabian Sea is part of yeah, yeah the Arabian Sea <laughs> part of the Indian Ocean. Yeah. But you know, to be very geographically accurate, sorry, I'm a nerd. You know, so <laughs> so basically, three thousand kilometers of you know, railroad and uh, truck road basically going from Kashi all the way to Gawadar, And that port basically will be, you know, uh, selling goods to Saudi Arabia, to the uh, UAE, to the Gulf countries and even to Iran and to Pakistan itself and maybe even to India. So the idea is that Xinjiang no longer you know, basically a backward province. It is now going to be the center of, you know, China's new Silk Road. It's the junction. And this is what what the the Imam told me in Kashi. He said, if China didn't let us go, basically, when we when our province mattered little, they will never, ever let us go. They will not let 12 million Uyghurs stand in the way of progress of 1.4 billion Chinese. So what he said, for the survival of our religion, for the survival of our race, we need to cooperate with China. He said basically, just like, and he main, he mentioned this name. He said just like, Ramazan Kadyrov in Chechnya wow, realized from, ep, from,
0: episode, from the last episode, <laughs> yeah. Kadyrov, who, who who's Putin's little lapdog.
1: Yeah. So as Ramzan Kadyrov in uh, Chechnya realized in the middle of the war against Russia that we're not gonna win. The Russian bear will crush us completely. So, for the survival of the Chechen race and for the survival of us uh, uh, in our Chechen religious identity,
0: just like Kadyrov, the Uyghurs need to uh, need to bend the knee, really, and just get on, get with the program.
1: Exactly, the program's
0: not changing, and the West is not going to change it.
1: So, no one is coming to our rescue. No one is coming to our rescue. Not the Muslim world, you know. Not the Western world we are the only ones who can save ourselves by accepting like our ancestors accepted before Qing dynasty, you know, hegemony over the Uyghurs. We can basically accept the current hegemony, but we have to negotiate in order to regain our religious freedoms. So amen.
0: Preventing Islamism from spreading amongst the Uyghurs of Xinjiang, preventing separatism, political separatism amongst the Uyghurs of Xinjiang. Is this really just an excuse that Beijing is giving in order to do whatever they want in Xinjiang, including, say, ethnic cleansing, just killing all the Uyghurs? Often that is what you hear in the the media, that, that in the end, the Uyghurs are done for. They're just going to be wiped out.
1: No, of course not. I mean, basically, otherwise, basically, we would be hearing about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying. But that's not the reality. You know, why spend, you know, you know billions of dollars basically trying to reeducate a whole population, you know, only to kill them later?
0: Right. So uh, I can understand that perspective. But let's like zoom out a bit from mm-hmm. the Uyghurs and talk about the new Silk Road and of uh, a Chinese dominated economic transport system that completely changes the way everything is working. Now, Officials in the Western world have actually known for quite a long time that this was coming. As I quoted at the beginning of the episode, China is a lion. When it wakes, it will roar. Dragon. So (laughs) I was personally first introduced to this new reality of a growing China uh, by a friend of mine. His name was Alexandros Peterson, a brilliant young American man who lived in Central Asia, lived in China. and was studying. He was actually one of the world's experts on the on the new Silk Road and what it meant for the world. Sadly, the Taliban assassinated, or he he was a victim of a Taliban bombing in Kabul, where he was teaching oh at a university, and he died. Uh, what a waste! It's a terrible waste. He 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 wrote a book called The World Island, in which he reintroduced to people. An older geopolitical theory, it's the world island theory. It was first formulated in 1904 by a Victorian geographer called Halford Mackinder. The world island theory is basically this, that if you take the whole globe, the African Eurasian part of the world is... The vast majority of the world's land, it's the world island. And in the middle of this world island is what's called the heartland, which is basically Central Asia, the Eurasian plateau that stretches from the the west of Russia into China, the heartland. The theory is if you control the heartland, you control the world island. And if you control the world island, you control the world. Now, in fact, if you think about it, the whole history of the 20th century is... The history of attempts to control the world island on the part of big land empires and the Western world, especially the British American world, trying to prevent that from happening, most famously during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union controlled the heartland and the American imperium, if you like, was absolutely animated about preventing it from maximizing the power that the heartland gave it. And it succeeded. The Cold War ended with the Soviet Union failing to... Take power that it got from controlling the heartland and dominating the world. Now we have China. China is dominating the heartland today and is laying down the foundations for a new wave of economic domination that by taking the power of the heartland, by linking the entire world island via land-based trade routes like in the old days, like the Silk Road before (laughs) the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British – created the new maritime shipping system that has dominated the world for centuries, Mm -hmm. now China's doing it, and they're going to succeed. So, Eamon, given the fact that the Chinese New Silk Road and its own New World Order really threatens America's... uh, is America trying to to stop this or undermine it? Is this what lies behind the, frankly, bellicose language of President Trump in the last few years and the trade war between China and America? Is America trying to stop the new Silk Road?
1: Well, yes, but half-heartedly because you know, there is a problem here, OK? And the problem is this. Trump has been engaging in a trade war, not only with China, but also with Europe and also basically insisting on uh, America's uh, energy independence, which means they don't buy oil anymore from the Middle East or beyond. So who's buying the Middle East oil right now? It's China. <laughs> so, so at the end of the day, it's like, OK, America, you don't want us to trade with China. You don't want 5G to come. You, you know, you're not buying our oil. Uh, but at the same time, basically, you're saying that we shouldn't even do it with China. So either you provide the alternative or shut up.
0: So by isolating itself, America is forcing the rest of the world into China's arms.
1: Precisely. So if you are going to pick up fights with Russia over the Ukraine and uh, the Crimea, impose sanctions, who will Russia trade with? It will be China. You know, you know, if China is going to buy Russia's oil and gas, if China is going to buy the Middle East uh, oil and gas, if China is going to um, you know export machinery to both uh, Russia and the Middle East, um, then and America basically is saying, oh, well, I mean, uh, we are going to defend the human rights and we are going to stand for freedom and all of that. OK, you want to stand for freedom, then become a viable economic partner or just do not try to sabotage you know, another economic partnership that is emerging.
0: If the United States was being led by someone more internationalist in out- outlook than President Trump, is it possible that he might be able to create a genuine global alliance or coalition against the rising China? Do you think that would be possible?
1: No. Because, you know, Obama also failed and he's an internationalist. America doesn't need a protectionist or an internationalist. What it needs is a pragmatist.
0: So you just, America just needs to face up to the fact the Chinese train has left the station. You better get on board. Yes. And so really, dear listener, everything is going to change. The Western world is sort of over as we understand it. And the new century is China's. Now this whole season is about the new world order that that George H W Bush wanted to create. <laughs> America it's it's not necessarily that America failed. It's that China has succeeded. The Chinese new world order is being born today. What do you think? Is am I am I right about this or am I am I exaggerating?
1: You are right, but there are some caveats here. You know we have to always you know remember something. China is not nation of innovation. China is a nation of imitation. And it will remain so for a little while. When will I see China rise to heights of greatness that was never seen before is when they are transformed from a nation of imitation to a nation of innovation. Because? Because then if they become innovative, nothing can stop them. Because at the moment, why the American economy is so dominant.
0: With the tech boom and the internet. I mean, we dominate all of them. I mean, we, I mean, I'm an American. You know, yeah. I personally <laughs> dominate the world economy. Uh, America dominates, you know, all of the innovative uh, technological advances that are creating economic growth at the time, especially from Silicon Valley.
1: Why? Because basically America is the innovation economy. Yeah. China manufactured the iPhone, but really who designed it and made it and created okay, America. But,
0: but what about, you know, Huawei and all of these big Chinese firms yes. and East East Asian firms more generally, which That's fall within the Chinese exactly. orbit? Exactly.
1: That's why I'm saying that at the moment they are imitating. But when they start innovating and they're beginning to, you know, we can we can see the transformation now from the imitation nation to the innovation nation. This is basically when we start to see a greater you know, Chinese dominance. Why? Because then there will be a true alternative. And the most important example of this now is the 5G rollout all over the world. The question is Huawei's
0: the... 5G network that right here in, in the United Kingdom, you know, it, it, absolutely, it's tearing political parties apart. Do we allow a Chinese firm, you know, basically linked to the Chinese security service to install for us our telecommunications network?
1: But here is the problem is that the Americans could not yet come with a viable alternative. Well, so I didn't exaggerate. So the new world order is Chinese. Exactly. That's why but, but, this is why I said that, you know, and I, I remember I was at a dinner at, you know, the largest oil company in uh, China. Um, I was their guest of honor at the time. And that was in 2010. So it was a really a long time ago, almost 10 years ago. So I remember I said these exact words because they were asking me, when do you think basically China will become the top economy in the, of the world? You know, and I was asking, you're Chinese, like, you know, why do you ask me? He said, because we love to listen to the opinions of others. So I said, okay, once you stop imitating and you start innovating, then the world is yours.
0: Well, it's happened.
1: Yes, it's beginning. It's
0: beginning to happen. It's beginning to happen. And it seems to me that the Western world is beginning to wake up to this fact. And this is directly connected to this new world order, America's yeah. new world order that it wants to, to to create. Because actually, China hasn't played along. China all along has had its own plan to create its own new world order, and it is succeeding and so we see it with Trump and the trade war against China. We see it with, with you know, even European leaders, usually so deferent to China, are beginning to speak out against the Chinese, against the power that they're, that the growing power they have. Even George Soros, famous for supporting all sorts of internationalist liberal causes, in February of 2020 in a speech said that China is a rising threat and the Western world really needs to begin countering it. This is represents a big change, and it could result in perhaps even a military clash between these two new world orders, mm-hmm. these two visions for the 21st century.
1: Well, we hope it doesn't happen. You know, China is a nuclear armed and it has uh, an important ace, which we didn't talk about. China has, you know, basically what I call the secret weapon. Oh, God. Putin.
0: Oh. I didn't expect you to say that.
1: Yeah, and i tell you why. Vladimir Putin is looking at China as an important, not just only an important ally, but an important, you know, uh, backer of the Russian economy. I mean, after all, basically, China buys a lot of oil and gas from Russia. Um, It's an important client. But also at the same time, the new Silk Road, you know, is going to pass through Russia. And through Russian satellite states, like, you know, if we can call Kazakhstan a a satellite state, but, you know, it's an allied, you know, uh, allied uh, to the Russians. So basically the Silk Road will pass through Russia to Moscow and St. Petersburg and then from there into Europe. This will empower Russia even more. Because basically, you know, so many goods and services coming from China and so many European imports. Don't forget, it's a two-way street. European exports from the UK and Spain and And Italy and Germany, you know, the cars and the machinery will also travel from Europe to China through that. So Russia will become the middleman between China and Europe and the rest of the world. And so... For Putin, he's looking at this and rubbing his hands, <laughs> licking, you know, licking his lips and thinking, brilliant.
0: Well, there you have it. Uh, America's new world order is being rather successfully countered by uh, the Chinese alternative, a real competitor with the new Silk Road initiative from China. And, you know, you never know what the future is going to hold, but the Chinese economy is still chugging along pretty well. Uh, Economic growth in the West is not so hot in comparison. Neoliberalism, this is the economic faith of the West in the New World Order era. uh, It was meant to spread. It was meant to promise endless economic growth for Western countries. It's not really happening and it certainly became spectacularly unstuck during the credit crisis of 2008. Um, And in the next episode of Conflicted, we will be talking about just that. What exactly happened in 2008 and what did it mean for America's grand vision?
1: I have to come wearing my banking hat next episode.
0: (laughs) This season, we've set up a Facebook discussion group where we post recommended reading. And if you want to go into even more depth about the topics we cover on the show, as with every episode, we are giving away a recommended book this week. This week's book is Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order by Bruno Macias, a book which successfully captures the exuberance as well as the apprehension that this huge project generates. Once again, all you have to do to have a shot at winning this book is join the Facebook group, Thanks to everyone who has. Your messages, comments, and feedback mean so much to us, really, and are actually very helpful in shaping the future of Conflicted. Find the group on Facebook by searching Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. You can also find the show on Twitter, at MHConflicted. And if you like the show, please rate and review us in your podcast app. It would also mean the world to us if you spread the word about Conflicted to your friends or even to your enemies, whether on social media or in person. Thanks again for listening. Eamon and I will be back in two weeks. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. It's produced by Sandra Ferrari, Jake Warren, and Jake Otayevich. Edited by Sandra Ferrari. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley.